All right, so for, we, we got a couple guests. What we mainly do in, in this group is we kind of go through um, a, 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 about three chapters at a time. It kind of varies based on what the chapters are. Uh, the book, Mere Christianity. Uh, we picked Mere Christianity because uh, Lewis clearly and deeply and sharply defines and explains Christianity. We don't pick Lewis because we agree with him 100% of the time, but because the percentage we do agree with him, he explains better than everybody else. And last week, there were a couple of things uh, we got into more last week where it's like, well, Lewis is close, but here's a, a sharper definition. Uh, with these chapters, I thought, hey, we agree more. I'll be able to run through the lessons faster, uh, but as usual, that's just an ideal that I never achieve. Uh, so uh, the, the three chapters we have are the cardinal virtues, social morality, and morality and psychoanalysis. In book two, Lewis is kind of getting into uh, what he calls Christian behavior. Uh, so these are ways of describing, ways of understanding how we are to act as Christians. If you remember last week, uh, the last chapter that we covered was called the, the Three Aspects of Christian Morality or, or something like that. And he kind of gave us a, an outline of a way to broadly think about morality. And he used a, a, a ship analogy. He said, you know, the first way we think about morality is how we treat one another, you know. Um, and in the ship analogy, that is, don't go crashing into anybody, you know, don't hurt other people. Don't cause unnecessary harm to other people. What you looking for? Well, this, this is where we are. I don't know where Ben is. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yay, come on in. What's your name? Mulder. How, how do you spell that? Mulder? Okay. Oh. Uh, <laughs> All right, so we have... Uh, Three aspects of morality. One is don't cause harm to one another. With the ship analogy, he says that's not running into one another. So the second aspect of morality is internal. The, the first one's kind of in relationship with others. The second one's in relationship with myself. Am I able to control myself? Am I able to uh, be able to pursue the morality I desire? And he says this is kind of like the, the inner workings of a ship. And he says this one's absolutely necessary accomplishing the first. If you, you don't have control of your ship, even if you don't want to crash into another ship, you may anyways. And he said third has to deal with uh, the ultimate goals of morality. What is, the, what is the ultimate destination and purpose of morality? This really has to do with uh, your, your view of God or other things like that. It's, okay, if, if, if there is a God, how am I right, rela rightly related to him? If there are rules or things like that that govern the universe, how am I related to them? Am I living in accordance with those things? Uh, and with the ship analogy, he says, uh, that's like picking your ultimate destination. If the goal of the ships is, is to sail to New York and you end up in Calcutta, then you haven't been using 
the relational and the power of the vehicle to accomplish the right goals. Uh, so in cardinal virtues, Can I yeah. I think that's, I was reflecting on that because I think he just grasps it perfectly. Yeah. But, uh, you know, a lot of my friends who are either nominal Christians or not Christians, they would agree with that, and especially the first two. Yeah. Like, you don't the, mess with other people, you don't harm other people, and you, yeah. you fix yourself. But they're going the wrong place. Yeah. You know? And so, even, um, like, I just, I was thinking, that's a good way to, you can, I can talk to someone about that and even explain to them, because a lot of my friends would say, well, I don't need religion, or I don't need this specific religion in order to be a, a moral person, a good person, or whatever. And yeah. it allowed me to kind of think past that and say, okay, that's true, I'll grant you that, but you're going the wrong, in the wrong direction. Yeah, I, I think really, I mean, it's kind of interesting because the culture Lewis describes is very similar to our own. He, he says, you know, the first one, don't cause harm to others. Everybody kind of agrees on it. That's in, in terms of the way our culture thinks about and expresses sexuality, that's about the only rule, right. you know, is don't cause harm, harm to others. You know, any, anything you want to do other than that, unless it causes harm to somebody else, is sexually permissible. And uh, you don't even really have a lot of constraints on self-indulgence or perversity or, or things like that uh, with the second, much less the third. What's the ultimate goal or purpose of sexuality? Uh, so I, I think in some realms, yeah, we can agree with one and two. But the further you get one, everybody kind of agrees on. They might differ in terms of what is not causing harm. You know, then two, you, you move a little more into specifics. And then three... It's like, okay, that's, that's where the major moral differences come up, uh, especially between Christianity and other religions, things like that. So, yeah, like you said, it, Lewis just explains it really, really well, really, really clearly. Uh, first chapter we're going over this week is called The Cardinal Virtues. There are seven uh, virtues, he says, uh, four of them cardinal, and there's three Christian. The three Christian we get to later. By the way, does anybody know the three Christian virtues? Not yet. Faith, yeah, that's it, uh, Wade. Uh, faith, hope, and love. Uh, Lewis uses a different word for love so that um, we, we don't get as confused, but he calls it charity, hope, and love. But it's, it's, it's the, he, he uses charity as a, a form of love. So those are the Christian ones. He dedicates whole chapters to those. Hey, Ben, come on in. Um. He, he dedicates whole chapters to that. What are the um, four cardinal virtues he talks about in this chapter? Prudence, temperance, temperance. Prudence, yeah. <laughs> temperature. Don't be hot tempered. Yeah, prudence, temperance. Justice and fortitude. Okay, uh, prudence. What, what, is he, what, is he, what does he call that? How does he describe it? Practical common sense. You didn't think common sense was a virtue, did you, until you got to this chapter? Um, there, there's a way I like to describe it. It, it. It's similar to Lewis. I think Lewis is using more common language. Uh, but, but one of the things I, I would say about this is that uh, prudence is practical wisdom. That's a way of putting it, practical wisdom. Uh, it's knowledge rightly applied. So it's right judgment, that is having good thinking, good discernment, 
and then proper execution. It's not just one or the other. It's not just having uh, good judgment or good discernment and then failing to act on it. It's both having the right judgment, the right discernment, and then proper ex execution. It's practical wisdom. Uh, for those of you who have your Bibles here, I need uh, two passages looked up. Somebody, can somebody get Exodus 35, 30 through 5? All right, Mike got that. And then Proverbs 4, 7. Who said that? Oh, Zach, you got that. Proverbs 35, verses 30 through 35. Or, sorry, Exodus. Oh, man. Sorry, I messed you up. 35, 30 through 35. Yeah, about 80%. <laughs> All right, Mike. Yeah, it sounds like I'm just repeating myself. <laughs> Chapter 35, <laughs> verses 30 through 35. Yep, it doesn't seem like it, but it is. <laughs> yeah. Okay, now th this is kind of a weird passage to pick, but I, I wanted to give it to you uh, so that you, you start thinking of, of prudence a little bit differently. What this passage is talking about is people who are specially empowered by God for specific tasks in terms of building and constructing the temple. It, it says he gives them skill, intelligence, knowledge with all craftsmanship. Now, now what's that talking about? That's talking about knowledge rightly applied. They understand their craft and how to execute it. They understand what to do and how to execute it. Um, it, it it's, in, in my mind, it's a, a special em, empowering of God 
in order to, to accomplish their purpose. Now, in order to be a craftsman, in order to uh, do these artistic designs and cutting stones and carving wood in every skilled craft, does that require wisdom? Absolutely. You have to not only know what to do, but be able to execute it? Yeah. By the way, I, I had a friend in high school. Uh, he was a UT fan, uh, and this was when Fulmer was, was the coach at, at UT. And uh, this guy, he'd never played football before. And I was having a conversation with him. And he said, y you know, I think I could make a better coach of UT than Fulmer right now. This was the later, year, later years of Fulmer uh, where he was going through, <laughs> you know, not, do not doing as good. And um, I said, really, what makes you think that you could be a better coach than him? And he says, well, I think I could pick better plays than him. I said, Okay. What makes you think you could pick better plays than him? Well, I've played a lot of NCAA football on the PlayStation. I thought, okay, here, here's a guy, and he thinks having no experience playing football, having no experience coaching or teaching others to play football, having none of these experiences or abilities, that he would have more skill in that craft than, than, than Philip Fulmer because he thinks he has more knowledge than him. And I just thought that you, you neither, yeah, they're, they're, they're lacking in, uh, even if they have the knowledge, which I don't think they do, they would not also be lacking in its practical application. So uh, when we think of prudence, it, it's common sense. It's, it's doing what's right. It's understanding what's going on. And I want you to be thinking, you know, in my job, whatever that job is, how can I be exercising prudence in my family life? in my relationship to others. How can I be exercising prudence? How can I know what I should do and actually execute it? Okay, so what's the, what's the second one he talks about? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I believe the Holy Spirit is working in us to do the works that God has prepared us beforehand to accomplish. So that, that is absolutely part of his work. Like all, all things, we need to be sub submitted to that and open to that. It's not automatic, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, we definitely, it's, as believers, have been given the, the Holy Spirit to guide and direct us. And he also says to be filled with the Spirit. So you can be somehow not filled with the Spirit, uh, you know, so I guess you can pray and ask for that. Yeah. You know, um, 
be strong in the grace that you're in Christ Jesus. Yeah. So yeah, there's a there's something to accessing what we have possessed and using what we possess. Absolutely. That, that it's at our disposal is something that you're saying is just yeah. It's uh, something to use in every area. Zach, you got Proverbs four seven. Yeah. Um, the beginning of wisdom is colon acquire wisdom, and with all your acquiring. Understanding. Do y'all ever, y'all ever think about that verse? The beginning of wisdom is getting wisdom. I mean, do, doesn't that seem a little bit redundant? Yeah. Like, in order to get wisdom, you need, you need to get wisdom. Um, it, it seems a little bit redundant, but the kind of the more you think about it, the more you meditate on it, the more true it is. Uh, in education, do we have any teachers in here? Got a, a couple. Okay, in, in, in teaching, what is one of the biggest things that a student has to learn in order to be able to succeed in any other class or any other skill? How to learn. How to learn. But which, which, per, which particular? Read. Read. Yeah, if students don't learn to read, what happens to them? <laughs> they get, in Memphis, they get forced through the system and graduate, but, you know. Yeah, Re, reading... Reading is one of the one of the biggest problems. One of the if it's failed to achieve, and one of the biggest assets if you do have it. Why? Because reading allows you to learn other things. I don't know how to cook, but I can look up a recipe online, and because I can read, I can follow those instructions and do it. I, I don't I don't know how to do many home repairs, but I can go on and read a tutorial and instructions of how to accomplish that thing. So one of the so reading is a skill that allows you to learn more skills. So what's what's this saying? This is uh, the the start of wisdom is understanding that the pursuit of wisdom should be the priority. Uh, I've I've got a wife who who's extremely organized. I'm not, and before I lived with an organized person. I thought organized people were kind of like this, that they got everything organized and then created a place for everything, and then everything stayed organized, and and that was the end of it. But when I married an organized person, what I found was uh, she organizes things, and then a couple months later, she looks at the system and reorganizes it and tries to improve it, and then months later, she goes through the same process again. So as an organized person, she is constantly in the process of organizing. And that was just shocking to me as a, as a slob. Um, but you got to do it more than once. Yeah, you got to do it more than once. That sounds even worse than I thought it was originally. Um, but but the pursuit of wisdom is similar. You start out by pursuing wisdom, and once you have wisdom, what do you have? You have the ability to pursue more wisdom. To whom much is given, much is expected. So the the the. Wisdom is one of those things that, that doesn't grow by addition. It grows incrementally. It grows by exponential amounts. The more wisdom you have, the more you have the ability to gain more wisdom. Uh, so, the, you know, all this is related to prudence. Uh, tr- prudence is practical common sense, learning to learn, pursuing wisdom and knowledge. Yeah. Seth, this tells me that you can never arrive in the sense of you can't be fully wise. I mean, God is the one who is completely wise. 
So when it says, when you get wisdom, you're right there at the beginning of it. Yeah. Then you get some more, you're right there at the beginning of it. There's just, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Yeah. That's and it's, uh, you, you uh, I mean, this is something that not only Christians realize, but I think it's Plato, Socrates. Socrates. I'm the wisest man because I know nothing. Yeah, because I know I know nothing. He knows so, he knows yeah. The more you know, the more you know you don't know. Exactly. All right, we need to hurry up. Um, uh, ne- next cardinal virtue, temperance. Uh, wh- what's, a, what's a good definition of temperance? Wh- what do you think of when you think of this word? Self-control. Self-control is a, a great definition of it. Uh, moderation might be another uh, way to describe it. Um, uh, by the way, total abstinence and total indulgence can be forms of being controlled by something. You get what I'm saying? Total abstinence and, 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 and total judgment can be forms of being controlled by something. So the objective is not to be controlled by anything. Uh, there's a couple passages here. Uh, let's just look at Philippians 4.5. If you take notes, uh, you can also look up Proverbs 25.16 as well as... Well, let's, let's look up the second one. Uh, let's look at Philippians 4.5 first. Can I get a volunteer to read that? All right, thanks, Jordan. And then uh, someone else look up Proverbs 25, 26 through, or 27 through 28. Can I get a volunteer? Can I get a witness? Thanks, Wade. Ready. Yeah. I, th- I think about that verse, it's like, what do you need to be known by? Your reasonableness. You're not an extremist. You're not a fanatic. You're reasonable. Uh, you're temperate. All right, Proverbs 25, 27 through 28. Boom. What's, now, this is kind of an interesting combination of things, isn't it? Proverbs uh, 25, 27, or sorry, 27 through 28, says, It is not good for a man to eat much honey. What's that talking about? Overindulgence, gluttony, which is uh, the opposite of temperance, right? So, but what's the second half of that thing say? Nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. So that, that's dealing with two, two levels of indulgence. One is on the physical material level. What's the other one on? Pride. On the spiritual. Seeking after my own glory. I can be overindulgent for my glory. Have a too high view of myself. Uh, and then the, the, the second verse says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. What are walls in a city? Yeah, it's your protection. It's your form of defense. If you don't have the ability to control yourself, what can you control? You're open and vulnerable. All right. Uh, justice and fairness, he covers pretty, pretty quickly. Or Sorry, justice and fortitude. Uh, what does he say justice is? Fairness. That has to do a lot with our everyday activity. Are you cheating people you're working with? Are you, are you cheating your work by being too lazy? Are you cheating your customers by charging too much? Um, 
Are you treating people fairly? Are you cutting people off in traffic? Um, so it, justice doesn't just have to do with court systems. It's how are we interacting with people? Are we, are we treating them fairly? Are we treating them well? Are we treating with them with respect? Fortitude. What is fortitude? Guts. Guts. Yeah. That, that's a fun one. As men, we should spend more time talking about this. Um, he, he says it's the, it, it can be kind of uh, courage is another word I like for it. And I think some, some places define it as courage. Um, so in this list, by the way, this list of seven virtues, some people will substitute different words for one another. Um, another definition I really like of fortitude is uh, fortitude is, uh, well, first of all, we'll say what he says, courage in facing danger and continuing on despite pain. You know, I think of endurance as that. What, what is an endurance? Endurance is courage over time. You know, not, not only can you face it, but how long can you face it for? Uh, another, another way of thinking about this is uh, fortitude is any of the other virtues at their testing point. Fortitude is any of the other virtues at their testing point. When it's hard, when it requires sacrifice, when it requires endurance, when it's difficult. When it's going to hurt me personally, am I going to endure and do the right thing? Okay, uh, he talks then about being a virtuous person versus doing good things. Uh, he, he has kind of the tennis and math analogy. Uh, you know, there's, there's sometimes when you can uh, get angry and hit the tennis ball really hard, and you might make a point off of it, uh, but that doesn't mean you're a good tennis player. You know, the, the, the goal is to be consistently practicing these virtues, not just to be somebody who goes through a rote list and does these things, but to be a person who is motivated by them. Uh, there's three reasons why he says why this is important. Uh, first of all, uh, your attitude and motivation matter. Just going through a list type of person, your attitude doesn't matter. Uh, your motivation doesn't matter. Uh, second of all, he God desires a certain type of person, not just rule followers. And then thirdly, he talks about, and, and this is kind of one of his themes throughout the book, is that um, your soul is an eternal thing. And, and the choices you make matter eternally. Uh, and you're gradually becoming a person who can either enjoy heaven or someone for whom heaven would be something that would be intolerable. You're, you're becoming somebody who is submitted to and growing more and more in love with God or somebody who is angry, bitter, and growing in rebellion against God. You're becoming somebody for whom the holiness of God will be a delight or a terror. Now, in case you're thinking, is Lewis just making this up? The quickest example I can do to, to prove this point is just to mention the Pharisees. What are the Pharisees? They're the rule followers. They're not concerned with the inward heart. They're concerned about what external rules can I follow. Doesn't matter about my attitude, my relationship with God, the type of person I am. As long as I follow the rules, it's all good in the hood. All right, any questions on seven virtues, or the four cardinal virtues, rather, that we covered? All right, good, let's roll. All right, social morality. Uh, this is morality between man and man. Uh, man, I took too much time on the first one, so I'm just going to kind of fly through this a little bit. Uh, he says that the golden rule, which is, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, not something unique to Jesus. Uh, Jesus mentions it in, in Luke 6.13. 
Matthew 7, 12. Uh, Ephesians 4, 28 is another place to, to look at this. Uh, and then he begins to describe uh, what a Christian society would look like. And um, by the way, uh, Keller gets at this as well. If you want to find out the areas that, that people are resistant to God in, I'll give you a, a quick way to find out what those are. You can use it for yourself. You can use it for others. Usually the areas that you're resistant to God's rule and reign in your life are the same areas that you are resistant to the rule and reign of the government in. So whatever area of your life you don't want the government in, chances are also pretty high that's the area of life you don't want God in. Now for, for the left, what's that? Sexuality? That's a big one for the left. I, I, I don't want to do that with my sexuality. Marriage, morality, gender, family relations, th those are areas they want the government out of. Why? So they can exercise personal liberty. Now, for the right, what area do we not want the government in? Money. Money. Money, guns. Don't take my power, my autonomy, my freedom. Freedom. Yeah. We don't want the government in those areas. So what are we resistant to? You know, Jesus says several times, sell all your possessions and give, to it to the, give your, the money to the poor. Do we like those passages? Not really. The, the early church practiced it too. Barnabas, before he gets started, the first time he's mentioned in Acts is by selling all his possessions and giving them, laying them down at the apostles' feet. So uh, in this chapter, Lewis deals a lot with uh, some of the economic implications of Christianity. Uh, what, what does it mean? Um, I think, uh, uh, let's look at Ephesians 4.28. I hope that's the verse I think it is. <coughs> yeah. All right. I'm, I'm just going to read it for time's sake. Let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Okay, why does it say the thief should no longer steal? So he can share, yeah. First of all, to provide for himself. What's he doing initially? Well, he's not providing for himself, and as a consequence of that, he's taking from others. So he's taking from others in order to provide for himself. What's the, what's the scripture say? He needs to be doing the opposite. He needs to be working, so he provides not only for himself, but also has money to be able to give. Um, which is a little bit different than the left. The left, the left wants to say it doesn't matter whether you work, you, sh you should be able to get something. And the right says uh, you should be able to work so that you can keep everything for yourself. The Christian ethic is that we are working hard. Why? So we can benefit others. By the way, Luther ha talks a lot about this type of stuff. Uh, if you're ever interested in the idea of vocation, uh, Luther is a really good guy to look at. And by the way, he, he says, you know, one of, the, one of the things we need to be sure of is that God doesn't benefit from our works and our morality. He says, but our neighbors do. Our neighbors do. One of the reasons why we do Christian works, Christian services, isn't so God gets anything, it's so our neighbor benefits. That's why we practice Morality, that's why we give to charity. That's why we help one another. That's why we support one another. That's why we love one another. That's why we do our jobs well and fairly. 
not, not so that we get some sort of merit of, from God, but as people who have received grace and gifts from God, we begin influencing the society, the culture, the neighbors around us with good works. Um, uh, do what you do well. By the way, I, I was reminded of this in our hospital visit. Uh, we had several different nurses. Uh, we were, I think we were in the hospital for four days after my wife had twins. Uh, they were C-sections, so there's you know, a lot of recovery, a lot going on there with her. And let me tell you, the difference between a competent nurse and an incompetent nurse, he's shaking his head. You, you lived it out just recently, didn't you? Yes. Where'd y'all have your babies? Germantown Methodist. We, we had them at Baptist, but same thing applies. If you have a nurse who knows what they're doing and is competent, it's a night and day difference. Uh, somebody who's, who's on top of their work. Uh, we had a broken clock in our, our room, and Jennifer's supposed to track when her feedings are and when she needs her, her medication. Well, she's actually not supposed to track it, but we were, the nurses were, but some of them did and some of them didn't. I don't know if you know this, but, but it's not fun having a lapse in your pain medication after having a C-section to remove twins. It's not a good thing. So if the nurses aren't on, on top of that, she's suffering. And I'm getting angry. My blood pressure's going on. Um, you have somebody who, who's on top of their job. What do they do? They come in. They're looking for what's wrong. How can I fix it? We had three nurses comment on the clock until one came in and adjusted it. Guess what? It still ran slow. So what'd she do? She went and got a battery the next time after it ran. So just being competent, being good at your job is a witness and a testimony. And it is important for the benefit of your neighbor. That's one of the reasons why I like working with men. If a man is virtuous, if a man is doing uh, what he should, he's going to be an asset to the church. He's going to be an asset to his family. And he's going to be an asset in the workplace and society in general. Guess what? If men are not doing well, if their inward man is being corrupted, if their morality is being deteriorated, they're going to cause damage in the church. They're going to cause damage in the home and the family. They're going to cause damage in the workplace. That's why I love working with men. I think you're a linchpin. You are important. You are vital. And the way in which you handle your morality affects a lot of people around you. This whole idea of godliness, this, we aren't talking about abstract, unimportant things. These are deeply practical, these are deeply personal, and they're deeply important. Take this seriously. Um, by the way, in this chapter, he gets at something that's really good. Uh, I wish we had... On each of these chapters, I'm like, we could spend a week on this, but we'd be here for a couple years. I should have started in the spring and just done it in the spring and the fall. That's what I'll do next time I teach this, because uh, there's too much to cover. He says, uh, one of the dangers we have when encountering Jesus is trying to find bits that we like, and then just only look at those, and then kind of ignoring the other parts that make us feel uncomfortable. He says, this is really dangerous, because w what we're given with Jesus, you know, it's not a buffet. You're given a master and a judge. If you have a master and a judge, you don't get to pick what part of the orders you obey. You, you don't get to pick what part of the sentence or the judgment you like. Now, that, those are things that are imposed upon you. Uh, lastly, he talks about morality and psychoanalysis. I am always so late. I steal from y'all's group time. I apologize. I need to get better at my vocation. Um, morality and psychoanalysis. He says, uh, 
I, I think psychoanalysis, when, when Lewis is writing, this is kind of the heyday of psychoanalysis, and, and Freud and all those guys uh, were, were still having a big influence. Uh, and he says there's kind of two aspects of moral choice. All right? Um, anybody know what the two aspects are? Well, okay, one is the act of choosing. I've got a moral decision. I've got to decide. What do I do? He says the, the other thing that goes on is the various influencing factors that occur whenever I make a choice. So when I'm making decisions, there's, there's these desires, there's these emotions, uh, there's, there's these impulses within me that are uh, fighting, that are quarreling, that are clashing, that are pulling different directions, leading me to the various decisions. And he says, morality really mainly deals with that first question of what do you choose? And is it the right thing or the wrong thing? He says, psychoanalysis kind of deals with the second. What are the things that are influencing you? Uh, he, he gives the great example of uh, three guys going to war, you, you know, um, and, and one is a perfectly normal person, has no psychoanalytical problems. And uh, so for him, it's just a, a moral choice. He said for the two other guys, maybe they have an irrational fear, you know, um, and that irrational fear is, is keeping, in, impairing their judgments. And they both get cured. And one says, oh, man, I'm so glad I'm cured of that. Now I can protect myself better. I can hide when, when courage is necessary. I can get out of the way. I can, I can get away from the real danger. And the other one says, okay, I'm so glad that I'm, I'm cured of that irrational behavior. Now I can do my country proud. I can act bravely in the face of danger. And I can do what I came here to do. The choice is different. Um, and one of the things he says is, uh, as people, we can really only we can really only see really number number one, that is the decision somebody makes. We don't see the the impulses that are pulling against them. I mean, one of the ways I think about this is, um, you know, I've I'm trying to I want to think I want to make sure I don't speak. I don't think I've ever done illegal drugs. Um, that's not that impressive in my life. I have only been offered illegal drugs once in my life. It was by somebody sitting in a car across a parking lot who I didn't know. So, so me accomplishing that it isn't that impressive. Now, if there's somebody else who grew up in a drug-riddled home, maybe even were offered and given drugs by their parents, and they later on, after doing many, many drugs, become drug-free, which is more impressive, that, but they used more drugs than me. It didn't matter. They, they had different external circumstances, di different psychoanalytical or situational pressures on them to accomplish that. So he says, number one, th this keeps us from judging people. And then he says, secondly, this helps us focus on what we need to focus on, which is the inward part of us that is making the choices. He says, you know, that inward part of us that, that makes choices is either gradually moving into something that is better and better and better, or it's gradually moving and turning into something that is worse and worse and worse by the decisions it makes. Uh, he, he says the chooser in us is either turning into something heavenly or hellish. And one of the ideas that, that supports this uh, that I'll just touch on brief, briefly uh, is that obeying God always has a restorative effect. 
if you want to be a whole person, the route is through obedience and submission to God. Sin has a disintegrating effect. But what happens after you sin? You start feeling shame. You start thinking, I'm a, I'm a bad person. It affects your relationship with, your, with yourself. It starts affecting your relationship with God. Ah, oh, man, I'm not, I'm not going to be good enough. I'm not going to be righteous enough. It starts affecting your relationship with others. You start getting mad if people start learning the truth about you and what's really going on. Or you get angry at them for, for little things that just annoy you. You start hiding yourself because you don't want people to know who you really are because of all the bad decisions and things you've made. It makes us less and less connected to God, to ourself, to others. It has a disintegrating effect. I believe Jesus is the most whole person who's ever lived. He's rightly connected to God, to himself, and to others. If you want to be whole, if you want to pursue those things, focus on, on making right choices in a right relationship with God. All right, that's all I got. Any questions, thoughts, comments real quick before we jump into group discussion? Go for it. Good people know about both good and evil. Bad people do not know about evil. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like his analogy for that too. He says if you're if you're doing math and you're doing math wrong, you don't realize that where the mistakes are in your equation. It, it's only it's only once you get things right that you can see right mathematics and wrong mathematics.